right, we're going to be looking at God's Word, and we're looking at 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, as we continue in our sermon series on clear convictions. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is the word of the Lord. Um, You want to have that open, and on the back of the programs, there's a sermon outline for you to help. In fact, there's a diagram, so you may want to refer to that. I follow on social media a guy named Steve Weatherford. Now, some of you might not recognize the name. Um, Some of you might, especially if you grew up in the New York area. Steve Weatherford, he was the kicker for the New York Giants, and he had a reputation for being one of the hardest training players in the NFL. Now, he has since retired, but he is a devoted Christian, and so he uses his platform for ministry now. And so on his um, social media, you see he's brought his hardworking ethic of sports training into the faith. Okay? He's pushing men to do all this physical activity. He has these really intense times of talking and praying over guys. It's... Um, When I look at these pictures, I think, oh, my gosh, this is a little too intense for me. But I appreciate the man and his work. And it gets me to think, how do people want to grow? What is their plan to grow in the faith? I mean, something like what Steve, his ministry offers is really cool. You kill three birds with one stone. You grow in faith. You grow in community. And you grow in physical health, too, right? But what about us? Maybe it would be nice to have something like that. But what do we think about when we think about how we can grow in faith? It makes me wonder, what's the natural progression of faith and growing faith in a person's life? That's what the graph is all about there. I want to draw your attention to the graph for a moment because it seems like this is many people's experience of faith. Now, what I'm about to tell you, I have no data for it, okay? It's not even from any anecdotes, but it's based on my impression of being involved in ministry, 15 years here with the church and 10 years before that. So 25 years of ministry of some strong impressions. Okay, let me explain the graph to you now. Let's say that the left vertical axis, the left y-axis, that is perceived growth in faith, okay? Perceived growth in faith. And we're looking at that first line, the one that has, that's numbered one. Okay, you start off high, a lot of excitement. But then over time, the excitement kind of wears off and growth slows down. Okay, you go from up and come down, right? <clears throat> Why is that? Well, what does the other curve represent? And so the right vertical axis um, measures life's responsibilities. Life's responsibilities. So you start off young, you, don't have, you have very few responsibilities, but as you get older, the x-axis is time. As you get older, your life's responsibilities increase, right? So what do we have there then? 
as life's responsibilities increase. That's curve two, right? It's hard to maintain a vibrant faith walk. And so we think that our faith decreases because we have all these spiritual disciplines that we have to try to squeeze in, but time is, is, is sparse because work is so demanding. Throw in a spouse, less time. Throw in a kid, even less time. And unless you make conscientious adjustments, most people let the things of God slip. You do the minimum, right? New moms, I think, are especially vulnerable. Baby and quiet times, they just do not go well together, right? But is this graph reality? I mean, to some degree, maybe, but what can we do to actually be on a plan for growth, growing in faith? Maybe this graph gives us what is the case, but is there something more? John will tell us. And it's actually a word that he gives us that is very encouraging for all, us, all of us. And we need to hear this word of encouragement and assurance. Why? You know, the reason why our faith journey might seem hard is not because of a lack of time or because of increased responsibilities. But the reality is, is that God has saved us to a very good and high calling in life. Okay? A life of loving God and loving others, the great commandment, that's what we saw in our passage last week, that's what frames, that's what frames our lives today. Just look at 1 John 2.10 from last week. This is what the context is. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Right? This was John talking about the commandment. This is the great commandment. Love your God, but love your neighbor as yourself. And that's a very high calling. And for that reason, John has to stop to encourage us. Be on this path and stick with it. And how does he do it? In the most effective way. What does he do? John gives us the basics. Okay? Makes perfect sense. Life is demanding. Responsibilities are high. Time and energy are low. What do we need? We don't need more complicated instructions, more hoops to jump through, just some simple basics. That's what this short section is about. Here's our plan for growth, straight from the Bible. In fact, it's so important that John repeats it twice, if you notice that, right? John encourages the church to live their good and high calling by sticking to these basics. All right. <clears throat> The way into our passage, then, is by first observing some of its features. John addresses different groups, children, fathers, young men. Those are our headings that we'll be working through. And then he repeats the instructions to them. And John writes these groups for specific reasons, reminding them that they can live the good and high calling. But the passage it raises some questions for us, doesn't it? Is John talking about literal demographics or spiritual metaphors? Are the fathers, are they church officers? Are they biological fathers or what? Are women included? There are no women mentioned here. And why does John go out of sequence, going from little children to fathers and then to young men? We're going to try to answer these questions, and hopefully the, in doing so, the passage will encourage us and not confuse us so that we as a church can live out our good and high calling. So the plan for growth. First, children, verse 12. 
I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Who are these little children? Are they literal little children or metaphorical little children, right? Well, John has called uh, the church little children earlier in chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things so that you may not sin, right? And so, little children is more of a term of endearment than literal kindergartners, okay? So we're talking spiritual metaphor. So we're talking about the early stages of faith, perhaps even new adult converts. And why specifically I think we're talking about new converts uh, or early stages of faith is because of what John writes. Verse 12 again, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Your sins are forgiven. That's like one of the real basic truths of our faith, right? It's like something spiritually young believers, they're getting used to that. This new rhythm of life where they're accountable to God now, they're mindful of his presence and his commandments and that their sins, they recognize, oh, they're not just mistakes that we can just kind of correct ourselves from, but these are actual offenses against God, which requires confession, repentance, and God's forgiveness. I mean, we all know that drill, right? As Christians, we know to confess sin. We wake up each morning praying forward that, God, I would live a good, holy life, meditating on our fellowship that we have with Father, Son, and Spirit. At the end of each day, you know, you pray backwards, looking back on the day, thankful for just making it to that point, right, and then reflecting on all the ways that you might have fallen short, where you ask for forgiveness for your sins, cursing, impatience, envy, lust, fibbing. You go through the list, the ways that we have dishonored God, right? I mean, if we're, all, if we're decent folks, then our behaviors, they might be in check, but it's the heart attitude that get us. That's what Jesus talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. We may not be stealing, but are we being generous? Are we being envious? We may not be committing adultery, but are we lusting? We may not be murdering, but are we getting angry? Right? That's what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. And there are other passages in the Bible that are helpful checklists for us. Going beyond nice, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5 the household codes of Ephesians 4 and 5. I mean, is this our daily rhythm of prayer and confession? I hope so. But what happens? Over time, the excitement of this relationship with God, this intimacy that we have with him, it wears off, and the motivation to obey and confess sin also wears off. It doesn't take long before we fall into that rut, you know, that cycle of futility. Sin, confess, forgiven. Sin, confess, forgiven. And we think that's, that's all that happens, and that's very unmotivating. And we fall out of practice. And so John includes a helpful and hopeful phrase. Because, I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. For his name's sake. That's an important phrase for us to keep in mind. Notice that John says, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Not because you confess your sins for his name's sake. What's the difference? Who's the subject? Verse 12, God is the subject. He's the one who is acting. He's the subject, what we call the divine passive. He's not mentioned, but he's the one who extends forgiveness to us. 
We're not the subject, we, who, has to, who have to confess sin. We have a part to play, uphold God's glorious name, confess sin, but it's God who upholds his name through us, where he helps us to experience the liberating power of forgiveness. See, God brings you through that repentance process, even when you don't feel like confessing sin. He does it out of his grace, and it's the means of grace um, from the word and prayer and worship. Like in our corporate confession earlier, how many of us were convicted of our sin? I hope God, in his grace, was working. Or maybe when you're at home and you're reading your Bible on your own, you're having time with God. We affirm what we believe, where we see it in the, in the passage, but then you realize, oh, there's some commands that I've been neglecting, and then we confess our sin, right? Those are the means of grace, and apart from these ordinary means, sometimes how do we find out about our sin? It's a, a child who calls you out, and you're like, oh, man, yeah. If we're honest, we'll confess our sin. And let me say, it's better that a child call you out than a spouse, okay? Or maybe it's an incident that God sends your way where you have to stop and realize there's some things that I've neglected here with you, God. The word and the spirit, they work to sensitize us to these promptings, don't they? That being the case, that's how God works. Here's another reality for us to be aware of. Our confession of sin is always lagging behind, always trying to catch up with God's forgiveness over us, right? Put another way, you know, what's that famous gospel phrase? How, how does it go? We are more sinful than we dared to believe, but we're also more loved than we dared to imagine. And with that, if we believe that, we don't just do nothing between that chasm of God's love and my sinfulness. No, we confess our sin. We try to work into that, live into that. So we're meant to confess our sin, but what about all of our unconfessed sin? Is God going to chronically be disappointed in me? And this is where we need to know that fellowship with the Father and with the Son is not dependent on our ability to confess our sin. It's not about how hard we try to scrub ourselves clean. Being in Christ is not dependent on my performance or even my lack of it. Where if I'm good, then I'm in with Christ. If I'm bad, I'm out with Christ. No, if we're in Christ, that means God's forgiveness has been taken over so that our condemnation has been removed. And that allows me to keep going with God and experience ongoing forgiveness for my spotty confessions. Okay? So being in Christ and in intimate fellowship with God, that's a result, that's dependent on faith, not dependent on my ability to confess all my sins. But we do need to confess sin. We need to believe in Christ, what he's done for us, and then confess sin. There's that ghastly phrase that maybe you've heard. Um, what is, how does it go? Um, my job is to sin, and it, God's job is to forgive. Maybe you've heard that. No, we don't have a license to sin, uh, to think that God's forgiveness allows me to sin freely. No, our responsibility, what our job is, is to confess sin, and it's God's job to bring me to awareness of forgiveness. 
how much it's available for us all to show us that God is gracious, that he is patient, that he is kind with us. We need to know God, who he is, what he's like, growing in faith, believing that I am covered by his forgiveness and growing to want to experience that. My little children, I write to you because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Okay? That's the little children, now the fathers. We span from old to young, um, I mean young to old, with this next word to the fathers, verse 13. I am writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. You know that word beginning, that was a key word. That, that we opened our, our study in, in 1 John with. It's in verse 1, 1, 1. The beginning. It's what, um, what life, reality, and existence is all about. The fathers in the church are the ones who get this. It's where God is the creator who made us, and he made us to know him and to rightly worship him. That's our true and ultimate purpose, why God brought us into existence, why you and I are here. And from there, the beginning is the beginning of the new covenant when God sent Jesus into the world to redeem us so that we could be born again and actually live as we were meant to. Fathers, get this. Most of us, we're just trying to keep up with life, survive, figuring things out get through school, figure out how to do well at, job, at my job, learn how to balance work and marriage, throw a kid uh, wrench in the works, right? Then another, and then another for some of us. And, you know, how am I going to stay relevant at work, keep up with all, all the competing whippersnappers there? How can I be happy? These are the things that we're all trying to figure out. The list goes on and on. But the fathers, they've gone through it. They've survived it. Faith intact, faith growing because they've understood the meaning of life. John Stott said, fathers are consciously living in eternity. But they aren't so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. The fathers are the ones, they get that life is framed by the great commandment. They don't get flustered, alarmed, outraged by people. They care about holiness but they also have a very healthy doctrine of sin. And so we know that emotions, force, sometimes even reason doesn't actually change a person. And so the fathers, they know that and they have influence, but it's because they have poise and gentleness, wisdom. You know, the world's ethic of love is, let me do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anybody, right? The biblical ethic of love is, I will actively and positively care for people as I faithfully live out my responsibilities. See, that's love my neighbor as myself. Right? That's, there's a difference there. What that means is for those of us who try to live this ethic out, there's always going to be a tension a struggle for time and energy, doing what I need to do, my responsibilities, but also doing what's loving for the sake of others. I think many of us in our church know this tension well. And we also know that we can't live any other way, right? It's a good and high calling that God has saved us to live. I hope you get a sense of what the fathers are like, okay? But who are they exactly? 
This is where I'm just going to give it to you straight and then reason it out, okay? The fathers, they're spiritually mature men with respect in a community, in the church community, because of their faith. Simply, they're spiritually seasoned men who get life as God intended, of loving God and loving neighbor, right? Spiritually seasoned men. I think that much we can say readily, easily, or right off the bat. I think we could also say that they are not primarily officers of the church. They are not earthly dads. They are not older men. They can be all those things, but they're spiritually seasoned men. Now, having said that, an important question is, did John only have the fathers in mind to encourage, as in only males? It's legitimate to ask, is John speaking only to men, or is he also addressing the women of the church? I want to say John has in mind seasoned women, seasoned mothers, as well as seasoned fathers. And here's why I say that. You know, sometimes the Bible gives you a very specific word for men, and other times it's general. But either way, it's only the men that are often referenced, right? It wasn't unusual to just address the men, the males. That was customary. But what John writes about here, about each of the groups, it can apply to both sexes, actually. In fact, everything that is mentioned um, for all the different groups it's true for all Christians, no matter what age or stage of faith or sex you are. All these things apply to all of us. The only difference is, is that the fathers have stood the test of time. So what we have here is not sex-specific, nor is it role-specific. This is where we want to be able to distinguish between biblical roles of creation between the sexes and the ancient world culture. There's creation and there's culture. Sometimes they overlap, just like when you address the men. But there's an example, there are examples when they differ, when the biblical culture and the world culture differs. For example, a patriarchal world culture could hold the view that fathers do not change the diapers, they do not do the dishes whereas a biblical creation view would not restrict those activities only to the women. Men have the freedom to do those things as well, even in a biblical patriarchal community. Now, if John was talking about roles, specifically um, teaching, teaching with authority, then I'd be arguing that the Bible is clear on that being a male role that is very different from the culture. But that's not what John's talking about here. So we have some freedom to acknowledge the women. It's not necessary they have to be included, but neither is it ironclad that they cannot be mentioned. Now, why am I going through all this, going to these lengths to try to um, reason that we can include the seasoned mothers of the church? It's because they are so valuable to the church community and family. They offer so much wisdom and care. We need them. And we want to mention them even in this slight way rather than just say nothing, okay? Just lastly, it's not sex-specific, it's not role-specific, it is wisdom-specific. What's being put forward is not male headship, not male leadership, but the wisdom of the older folks. That's the overarching point here, where we go from young to old, unseasoned to seasoned, untested to tested, so yes, only the fathers are mentioned, sure, <clears throat> but that's like something um, like where a father would be complimented for his family. 
even though both father and mother are both involved in raising the children. In fact, where mothers do much of the day-to-day child-rearing, right? So there you have it. We can include the seasoned mothers. Fathers, seasoned mothers, be assured that you knowing him who is from the beginning, that's all we need to know. That's like the eureka discovery that we have worked out and we're living it. Be assured of that. Lastly, young men. 1 John 2.13 continues, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. The young men, they're the ones who are in the prime of their lives, who have the strength of youth, who are growing in wisdom of a man, and so they're also growing, knowing how to fight to live that blessed life the blessed life of the great commandment. For instance, we know that sin is what's holding us back from living the life of fruitful blessing. And that's why we don't spend a lot of energy spinning our wheels, wondering why things aren't working out, blaming others, playing the victim, afraid to take risks, stuck in our insecurities. We're fighting. We're fighting against all these temptations because we're aware of the spiritual forces and the battles that are lurking in our hearts. Young men, we're, we're doing more than just t- try to be good and to grow in character, but we're delving deeper into our souls, where the battle is for our identity, our purpose, our core values, the desires of what we really want in life. We don't want sin. We don't want sinful excuses holding us back, and so we're fighting to overcome. And we can only fight. First, know this, we can only fight because we know him who has overcome the evil one. Not because we are strong, but because we are relying on the Lord Jesus and his victory. But it's to the point that we know and we claim his victory so much that John says, you have overcome the evil one. He's affirming our faith. And a characteristic of overcoming the evil one is not getting stuck in our failures but overcoming with truth. What does that look like? Sometimes you have wins in your fight against sin. Sometimes you have losses, but those losses can't bring you down. See, those losses, that's where the devil wants you to be, hiding in the corner of guilt and shame. But rather than overcome, we dare to move forward in faith that I am forgiven. That's how we overcome. It's at the level of more than just behavior, but our identity and our purpose. I'm a child of the king. And so, yes, I am hurt by people, but it's the king who protects me and loves me and even heals me. I'm a child of the king. He has forgiven me, and so I can actually forgive others too. The identity of being a child of the king is greater than the hurt that I secretly want to nurture in my heart. I'm a child of the king. I want to be like my father. I want to be like the Lord Jesus. I am overcoming that I am not and claiming that I am. See, this is an all-out assault that we have to be fighting. We're engaged in. It's close quarters, hand-to-hand combat. It's, It's messy but it's where we're fighting for joy rather than blame, fighting for 
peace rather than despair, fighting for courage rather than pride, fighting for trust rather than fear. I'm living into the great commandment, overcome rather than stay in chains. I wonder if you've taken that step into the battlefield. And I want to say, brothers and sisters, this is where it's at. This is what it's all about, where we all need to be. We can't move on to become the fathers and the mothers without this middle step in the journey. This is the next step in the progression of spiritual growth, how we're living out the great commandment and how we're doing it together. See, who will make manifest the bonds that we have to each other rather than the bonds to the evil one? That's where we are. That's how we're to live. That's where I hope that we can be in terms of our contact time with one another, whether it's Sundays or life groups or our specific ministry groups. When we get together, are we fellowshipping, able to talk and confess and share at this level of our common need and struggle? Confessing not only our sin and need and our failures, but our truths that we have overcome. This is a trajectory of growth. There you go. We go from child to men to fathers. It's basic. And yet it's so significant that John repeats it to emphasize to us to stay on this path. Look at verse 13 and 14 again. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. From that repetition, you know, there's some variations, but it's just pressing home the reality that we are children of the Father. We have fellowship with him and the Son. I just want to point out one thing about the repetition. There was one that doesn't change, and that's to the fathers. You know him who was from the beginning. Why is that? Because that's where we are all headed, to be seasoned Christians who get it about life. Living out the great commandment, which is our frame, it's a good and high calling that God has called us to. Let me... um, bring things to a close with some application. If you look at that graph, where are you? Where are you on that graph? I only ask that, but um, I, I don't ask that too seriously because I think that graph is far from accurate. It's an illustration of one way of seeing our faith journey. But what I will point out from the graph are two things that are worth noting. First, there is this perceived lack of growth or sense of growth It acknowledges how some of us might feel. But it's perceived. Because what John gives us here is God's word. This is a far better plan to gauge our lives by. So where are you in God's plan that John gives us, from little children to young men to fathers? I want to say that there is no shame in being um, in the little children's group especially if you're a new believer, right? But if you've been a long-time believer, a believer a long time, then hopefully you have progressed to the young man stage. If not, again, no shame. Just means now it's time to move deeper. And here's the first test for you to go deeper. Just admit that you're still at the child stage. I press this because 
Becoming a Christian means we've experienced true and healthy humbling, haven't we? And, and that admission of saying, I, I still might be at the child stage, that is just consistent with the healthy humility. Late bloomers, better than never bloomers, right? But can you honestly say, I want to grow, and this is where I'm at? The other thing about the graph, it prepares us visually for the challenges that we will all face in life. It helps us to make sense of what's going on. Yes, my responsibilities have increased. And yes, my faith will be stressed. But that does not mean we will not grow. The fact that responsibilities grow and we're still Christians means that we're tracking. We're growing with our responsibility. We're, we're keeping pace. We've got different circumstances and challenges. And we're all hanging in there. Of course, you might want to think, I want to grow more. But you might also think, there's no possible way, given my schedule. But this is where we ask God in prayer. Be responsible for my growth, is what we tell him. Even though my lifestyle just seems unsustainable as it is, we don't want to let our expectations discourage us. We don't let them discourage us at work, so why should we with our faith, right? Over time, you know, I've adjusted my own expectations for myself, but also even for the church. In the beginning, I thought that everyone had to be on a path to become servants and leaders. You know, that's just one clear sign of growth. But I've also come to realize that not everyone is gifted by God. Further, God hasn't given everyone the opportunity. Maybe God has blessed you with a, a high-powered job. And you just cannot give more to the church. If you want to keep your family together, then that's it. I understand that now. It could mean you might need to reconsider your job. Or it could mean you keep your job, but you try to stay connected with the church as best as you can. But what you have to work hard at is staying connected with God personally. In intimate fellowship, just as much as you try to drive for work success. That personal private time is absolutely necessary. That much you have to do. We all have to realize, I mean all of us, that one thing is more important than the other. And let me make what, what that thing is that's more important. From Jesus' own words, when he warns us, where we might get confused, but he tells us, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his own soul? We need to know that and answer that for ourselves deep in our own hearts. But I also want us all to be encouraged, maybe even relieved if you've got this intense job that demands so much of you. You're trying, and your effort is seen. Go on, keep loving God and loving your neighbor and showing it as best as you can, and God will continue to show you in ways which you didn't think you could frame of our lives, the great commandment. So as we walk out those doors after this service, we might stop by the, the Hopeline desk. But what we're all going to do is live into uh, that commandment. We're going to speak a word of encouragement to one another. We're going to try to speak a word of encouragement to one another, okay? 
And in the process, maybe if you go deeper in conversation, you'll have an opportunity to acknowledge, I've been forgiven for my sins. Maybe you'll even be able to speak about how you are overcoming the evil one. There you have it. That's everyone's assignment. You walk out those doors. Know that you are strong. The word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word to us. We pray that you would give us the strength, the conviction, your Holy Spirit to believe and to act, to battle and to encourage. We pray that that would happen in our church community. We pray that we'd be able to remind one another of these glorious truths, that we are on this path of growth, what you have given to us. Thank you, O God, for your grace, your patience, and your kindness with us. Hear the longings of our hearts. Despite all the responsibilities and all the demands, all the unmet expectations, all the ways that we fall short, that we do want to know you and follow you and grow in you. Answer us in your kindness and in your mercy and your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.